0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Bethlehem Church Podcast, where our goal is to offer you compelling biblical content to equip you to live an empowered Christian life. Each week, you'll hear a message from our lead pastor, Matt Robinson, or another member of the Bethlehem team. We also host a conversation every week where we unpack different facets of Sunday's message. We're so excited about this message, and we hope it's a blessing to you. Let's jump in. How many of you are familiar with the book Nahum at all? Miss Kathy said, me, I'm the only one, and broccoli Rob. All right. So it's very, uh, very different, and just bear with me as I try to be faithful to the text here, uh, but if you want to take your Bibles and go ahead and turn there uh, to Nahum chapter one, that's where we'll be landing this morning. Uh, that's where we're going to be at, and if you would like to follow along with my notes, they're in the program, BethlehemChurch.cc slash program. There's a lot of bonus features in there that I'm not going to say that are just there for your viewing pleasure. Uh, So you're going to want to look at those. That'll be helpful. Um, But moving in, I guess to kind of show my hand a little bit, how many of you, how many of you are nervous by the condition of our world? Like that's something that makes you anxious. Most of our hands are up. Our world is, we can all agree that the world we, (laughs) Mr. Dave's like, yeah, world's the worst. Hashtag colonnate Mars. Um, <laughs> but the the state of our world is something for a lot of people that produces anxiety. And, you know, especially with the 24-7 news cycle that we all have access to. Like, it's, it's a lot. And so what I want to do is, so Nahum is a minor prophet, which is just a word that we use because it's a small book. <laughs> um, but he's in a group called the Twelve in the Old Testament, and he writes a short Oracle towards the the Empire of Assyria and more specifically the capital city of Nineveh Um, It seems like every time I preach up here. I'm talking about Nineveh. I'm starting to notice a pattern Um, (laughs) But this is the other side of that coin Um, But basically just to give you a, a summary what he does is he opens up and he you know He is casting judgment over this evil empire and it you know it comes as a comfort to his people uh, Nahum's ma- uh, his name in Hebrew is Nahum, which means comfort. Uh, we don't know anything about this guy or his hometown of Elkosh, uh, which is mentioned in chapter one. All we know is that his name means comfort, and the primary uh, reason for him writing what he's writing is to give comfort to his people and judgment over a city. And so what I would like, just to get you guys in the frame of mind, uh, what I want to offer this morning is I want to try to get us all to look at the happenings of our world and what is going on. Instead of looking at it through our lens of of just chaos and mess, what I want to do is give you a good idea of what Nahum's lens would have been when he looked at the world when he had this vision. So we'll go ahead and jump in here. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 8. It's a really short book. I would encourage you to read it. Uh, Verse number 1 says, The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. Not verses that you'd put on a coffee mug. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake, and because of him, the the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all its inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue its enemies into darkness. Okay, how many of y'all were encouraged by that? Probably nobody, <laughs> right? That's pretty, uh, that's pretty bleak, it's pretty harsh. Um, but we have to put this into context. So how many of you are familiar with Assyria and Nineveh? Okay, for the bulk of you who are not, I'm going to give you guys a brief, brief uh, summary, I guess is the right word. Um, so, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and from a biblical mindset, if you go to Genesis 10, there's a guy mentioned called Nimrod. And this guy Nimrod was basically, uh, Michael, I see you laughing back there, don't think I didn't notice. That's right, I see it. Um, but Nimrod was basically, he's kind of cast as like this, the first like bloodthirsty warlord person. And what the Bible does in Genesis 10 is it links... The founding of Assyria and Babylon, two of you know Israel's arch enemies, uh, it links their founding to this guy named Nimrod. And so when we're thinking about this city and this, this nation of people, their origins come from this guy, who is linked back to the giants in Genesis chapter 6. So all around, like, lots of cosmic evil, lots of bad stuff wrapped up in this. And then fast forward, Assyria was the first like big empire of its kind. There was not, a, there was not a, an empire that had existed before Assyria in, in any way, shape, or form. And honestly, there has not been a people after the Assyrians that were quite, quite like them in size and in just the way that they did business. Um, so this is the group of people that is targeted, and the Bible links them all back to this guy named Nimrod. Like, it's evil. Like, their root is evil. And so when we read this, like, this is something that you know, maybe your village atheist would read and say, see, God is so mean and so rude, he's destroying people. And But when we read it in context, we understand who the target audience is. And once more, it's not all of the people of Assyria, it's their leadership, if we read the book. God wants to topple their evil regime. So to put it in context, that's kind of what we're working with here. And what Nahum is doing is he's giving us an oracle. And an oracle is just a to put it simply, it's a very weighty saying, like it's a heavy thing. When we read that, you felt the weight behind it. You're like, ooh, that's uh, it's a little rough, a little rough there, Nahum. And he would say, yeah, it is, and that's, that's the design. And so when we look at this, this is kind of the, the, the stage that has been set and how the Assyrians have been cast, and Nahum's he's, he's playing ball. He's playing ball with them. And so what we have to understand, and, and coming, from a, coming from this perspective, what I want to give you guys today we're all anxious about our world. We're all, you know, I've heard people say, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, I just can't even think about bringing children into this world, right? We've all heard that. A lot of us have probably said that. And next thing you know, you've got five kids. <laughs> Where, where's Pastor Matt at? He's in there. <laughs> um, but, but we all know the state of our world is, is just, it's no good. And what I want to offer you today is a sentiment of comfort and the fact that, you know, what is going on is not outside of God's control, and I want us to glean some comfort from looking at this just in a a very different way. And so to kick that off, we have to understand that where comfort does not exist is in a world that we have control over. How many of you are control freaks? Be honest. Yep. Karen's like, I have to raise my hand. I have to. (laughs) Um, and if you didn't raise your hand, your friends know if you're a control freak or not, right? But for me, I, 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 I'm not a self-identified control freak, but some of you who know me and work with me may think that I am. Um, but here's the thing, we are a mess. Can anybody agree with that? Okay, so therefore, when we want to control things, when we want to, to, to shape the world that we are a part of, as good as our intentions are, guess what? It's still a mess, right? And so when we look at this, it's important for us to understand that when we look at the world, and right from our American context, we're like, if every, if every other country was like the United States, the world would be a pretty good place. You know, that's how we think, right? But here's the thing, we, we, don't, we don't have the answers. We do not. And so the first step on this, this comfort journey, if you will, on our way to the tempur Warehouse Um, (laughs) the first step on that journey is understanding that we are not in control. The verses that we just read show clearly that, hey, you know who is in control, and you know who is going to set up and destroy is the God of Israel, is God Almighty. Like, he is the one in control, and the sooner we realize that, the sooner we will cease to be anxious because we're not in control, because if we are control freaks, when we hand stuff off to other people and other people are doing things, we're like, I don't know if they're gonna do it the same way I would. This is gonna be bad. And then it ends up being good and you're like, I still wouldn't have done it that way, you know? Like, and those of you who are laughing, it happened to you or you do that, for sure. Um, but but here's, here's the thing, the root of the need to control is fear. And guess what God hasn't given us the spirit of? Fear. Right, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a what? A sound mind, yes. Good job, class. You guys are doing so good today, I love it. <laughs> so we have to understand that, that that control will only, like if we feel like we're in it and we've got, we've got what we need out of it and it's squared up the way we want it, guess what that produces? It produces anxiety. What it does not produce is any sort of joy or comfort. All right, we're, we're not in control. And that's that's hard to think about the fact that and I and I and as a parent I think about this often like there are things that can happen to my daughter that are just completely out of my control, and God help her with the stuff that does happen to her when she is in my control, right? <laughs> I'm the only one? No, okay. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, but but we can't we can't feel the need to control. We just can't because as hard as we try and as much effort we put into controlling. And keeping things in our wheelhouse—guess what? It never really is, and we've worried ourselves for nothing. So the first step on this journey is that we need to understand that we are not in control. So moving through the text here, Nahum does something interesting in verses uh, verses two and three. Uh, you don't have to. I'm trying to stay stay centered here. I think it'll catch it. You good? All right. <laughs> Sorry about that. Just you know. Hey, look—it's the weather. It's not my fault. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Nahum makes a reference in uh, verse number two. He says this. "The uh, Where's my reference here? There it is. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He makes this reference, and if you're familiar with the Exodus narrative, you'll understand where this comes from. This is like pulled word for word out of, I think it's Exodus 30. It is, it's Exodus 34. Um, but it's pulled word for word when the Israelites... They go apostate like right after the covenant's instituted, they worship the golden calf, and God's like, I'm gonna destroy all of you. And Moses is like, hey, pump the brakes, dude. Like, you don't have to do that. We can work this out. And Moses intercedes, and after all of that happens, the covenant is renewed, and God says this about himself. He says, The Lord God is passionate or compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving-kindness and truth, who keeps loving-kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the fathers or the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And what Nahum is doing here is he's 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 it's like a call to remembrance. Like this is something that everybody who read this when it was written would have known, like, oh, he got that from the Moses story. He got that from when God chose to, instead of destroying his people. And starting over with Moses, he said, no, I'm, I'm full of grace. I'm, I'm full of loving kindness. And my posture towards you is not one that wants to harm you. You following me? God does not, his desire is, is not to judge us. That is not what he wants to do. And what Nahum is doing is like, listen, because at this point, the Israelites are in exile, They've been judged for for going apostate again, worshiping Baal and sacrificing their children, very dark stuff. And God said, no, I'm gonna judge that. And the Israelites full well knew that God didn't let evil go unpunished because about 80% of them had been wiped out by the Assyrians. Like they knew that. But Nahum says, listen, I know that it's hard to see at this point in time, but I need you to understand that the God that we serve and worship is not it's not all that you see today, right? Just because we are enduring judgment does not mean that that's what he wants. And he says, I want you all to remember and reflect on the God of your fathers. The God that said, I will not completely destroy you, but I am full of love and kindness. And that's a, boy, that's a call to remembrance. And when I read this, I was thinking about, how many of y'all remember when you first met Jesus? When you first got saved, when your faith was new, to you. We all all remember that to to some degree. Some of us were younger than others. Some of us were older than others. But the key detail that we remember is just that feeling, that buzz like, oh my goodness, like this weight has been lifted off my shoulders. Like I'm going to charge hell with a squirt gun. Like this is awesome. Yes. And then you're like the weird person at all the family gatherings and they ask you to pray because none of them do. And that's just like the thing. Right, like it's all new, it's all fresh, right? We've all been there. I like to call that cringy Christianity. It's like, the new, it's like the newborn baby stuff. You go back through your Facebook memories and you're like, ooh, that was weird that I said that. <laughs> I've grown so much since then. Um, just me again, no? Okay, anyway, but, but my point is that there's a, we, we all need a call to remembrance of what that felt like. Who is Jesus to you now Compared to who he was when you first met him. Has that relationship grown, or has it has it what was a what was a raging bonfire become just a, a smoldering ember that is barely staying lit? And if if you're anything like me, you've either been there where you're just a smoldering ember, or you are there. You are in a place where you have forgotten, and, and look, we're not after touchy-feely stuff here, right? Like, we're not after a feeling or some sort of emotional buzz, but it, it is somewhat of a byproduct of what the Holy Spirit makes you feel, right? And if, if you're not in that place, I've, look, we've all been there plenty of times, and if you are there, there is, there is a remedy here of how to get out of that funk and move forward. So his reference to Exodus, it's, it's covenant renewal, and it's a callback to a God whose response is always for the good of his plan and his, or foremost, his people. The God that you used to be in your mind, guess what, he doesn't change. Has Jesus changed or have we changed? We have changed, right. So if we are changing, if our mindset is changing, guess whose fault? That's not Jesus. It's not his fault. So the truth is it's, it's our attitude, right? It is our attitude. Oh, okay, there's the camera. Um, it is our attitude that changes towards the Lord, and it's not him that changes. So how do we, how do we fix that? Our, if, our, if our faith has, okay, pause. I'm going to take you all down a journey real quick. So I bought a minivan in July. Huge milestone in my 26 years, right? <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Jason's happy for me. Um, huge milestone, right? And I, I love, <laughs> there's one thing I love about buying, buying vehicles among all the garbage, and I love, 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 love the new car smell. Anybody else love that? I, I get the itch to go all the time because as soon as you get in, it's like, phew, it's like just hits you in the face as soon as you open the door. That's got a fresh seal and doesn't leak water. I'm fantasizing here. I, look, I drive a 2012 Ford Focus with 217,000 miles. It does not have the new car smell anymore. Anyway, it's got other smells, but not the new car smell. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I, we, we bought a minivan, and it's a 2018, so it's not new, and you know, we're going through everything at the dealer, and you know, you know, is everything okay? Is there anything that we could do to make this, you know, make this thing happen today? You know, the whole, the whole gamut of the, the car dealership thing. And I'm like, yeah, everything's good, everything looks nice, it's certified, like, but I just, the, the new car smell's not there. Like, it, I, really, I really want to spend an extra 20K to get that smell for a couple months, honestly. And he's just like, yeah, I can't fix that for you, sorry. He's like, but we do have this other vehicle, you know, that, that does have the new car smell. Um, but, listen, <laughs> but I, look, I love it, you love it, we gotta have it. And here's the thing, your faith can have the new car smell all the time. It doesn't ever have to go away, and here's how. <laughs> Uh, John uh, John 14 says this. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Listen, the call to remembrance that we need comes from the Holy Spirit. Are we look? Are we in touch with the Holy Spirit? And if you know, you know. It's just one of those things. But if we're not, if we're not in tune with what the Spirit is saying. If we're not moving forward in our sanctification process, like, guess what? Your new car smell, the excitement that you used to have about going to church that isn't there anymore, it's going to be gone. We, we get all excited about the moment when we are justified, when Jesus makes us our, his own and he takes ownership of us, and he forgives our sin, and we're like, oh my goodness, this is so amazing. I'm gonna sing my heart out every week in church, and then it just fizzles out. Why? Because we didn't follow up our justification with sanctification. You following me? If we, if we stop there, it's like you plant a tree, but the seed never grows. Guess what? It's good for nothing. There is still life in that seed that can grow, but if it doesn't grow, you would call that what? Trick question. Just kidding. That was a pretty uh, open question. It's dead. That's what it is. If you plant a seed and it doesn't grow, it's dead. James said faith without works is what? Dead. Now, when we talk about this idea of sanctification, what I'm not saying is that, hey, you need to do X, Y, Z so you can go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible says, and that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if you want that new car smell, if you wanna be in a place where you're excited about the things of God and you're getting plugged in at the church, you have to move forward with your sanctification process. You have to want to grow as a Christian and grow in your faith. And honestly, that means the opposite of what we'll see these empires doing in this passage. It's the opposite of building yourself up. It is actively tearing yourself down. Trust that the spirit who justified you is the same spirit who wants to sanctify you. The Holy Spirit that you got all the the warm and fuzzies about, like he's the same guy that wants to keep you on track and keep you moving forward to the desired end. And what is the desired end, you may ask? What should I do? What are the things that I should be doing? What's my checklist? Here's the the sad part. There isn't one, right? The, The end result is that we are conformed to the image of God's son, Right? The more we grow in our life to become more like Jesus, that is what sanctification looks like. And guess, and guess who's the only person that can help us do that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one that will conform his church to be more like his son. That's it. And if we're not tapping into that, if we're not, look, if we're not engaging scripture, if we're not, if we're not praying over things, if we're not fellowshipping with believers, we're not getting there. We're just not. And we, <laughs> your, your car, look, your faith's gonna smell like my car if we don't get it together, okay? And we don't want that. Nobody wants that. So let's, let, let's move forward in the text here. Um, so he, he makes this interesting statement in verse three. He says this, he says, In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Now if we, if you're familiar at all with how storms work in the Bible... What's happening is that storms are used to depict, like, tragedy or, like, dark times or turmoil, and we all know that to be true. We still use storm metaphors, like, yeah, I'm just going through it. Feels like I'm in a storm right now, just hoping it passes and the sun comes out, right? Like, that's, that's how we think. That's, that's still how we think. And so what's interesting, though, is when he draws this conclusion, when he puts this together, he doesn't say he moves the whirlwind and the storm away, That's not what the text says. The text says that God's way, where he chooses to operate, is in the storm. How many of y'all have ever gone through a hard time before? All of us, right? And when we're in a hard time, what we end up praying for every time is, Lord, let this pass. We always quote that psalm out of context that says, this too shall pass, right? Just like a kidney stone. Um, (laughs) That was delayed. (laughs) Maybe a little too much. Cut that one. We'll scrub that from the video. Um, but, but we always want the storm to pass by. There's a hymn, when the storm passes by, when it's, when, you know, I don't really know the words, I just know it's a hymn. Um, but but that, that is our desire as, as Christians. We always want the trouble to pass away. But what Nahum is describing in this passage is, is the exact opposite. He says, listen, here's what you need to understand, right? And let's pull this out and look at it in context of what we're looking at, the mess that we see in the world. The mess that is, and I (laughs) I hate to use the Middle East as a whipping post, but it really, like, that is a prime example of the rise and fall of empires, like, all the time, right? And what happens all over the world, the United States, we see rises and falls all the time, different people, different leaders, right? We see it. It's everywhere. It's never not happening. And what Nahum is saying is, like, listen, in all of that mess, in all of your mess, you have to understand that that is where God does his best work, you have to understand that in the times in your life that are tumultuous, I think I said that right, and the ones that are tough and rough, those are the ones that God wants to work in. And he wants to, the time that you are in that space, he says, listen, let's learn something. Listen, let's move your sanctification forward. Let's, let's grow our relationship together. But what do we say? Let's let it pass by. Let's get rid of it. And God says, no, 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 no. 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 This is, this is where I want to do my best work with you. You prayed and said you wanted to be X, and here I am trying to do it in the storm, but you don't want it to happen because it isn't on your terms because you want your life to be a bed of roses, and we all do. That's a, that's a human thing. Like We all want a, you know, a cushy life, a comfortable life, and that's, that's not a bad thing to want, but I think the, the, the headspace that I want us to be in and I've been musing on this and thinking about it is instead of praying for the storm to pass by, we need to pray for the storm to do what it's supposed to do. That's it. Because if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do and it just passes over, guess what? You experience pain for no reason. You learn nothing, you gained nothing, and guess what? It's gonna happen again. That's, that's the end of it. But if we say, if we're in a hard time and we say, Lord, show me what you need me to see, then there is purpose in our pain. Then we give him space to work in the environment that he chooses to work in. And when we don't do that, guess what? You stay the seed in the ground. You stay the tree that doesn't grow because it's dead, because it only wants what it wants. And, and I don't want any of us, including myself, to be in that position. Don't just pray for the storm to pass. Pray for it to do what it's supposed to do. Moving through here, verse number four, this is, I love this part, this may not be a huge deal for you, but I read this and it was like dingers going off in my brain, Um, but uh, the Bible says verse four, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry, he dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither, and the mountains quake because of him and hills dissolve, and this is like a, you know, this is just a, it's poetic imagery of, of what it looks like when God gets a hold of something that needs to be destroyed, and uh, how many of y'all associate things with place names? Like when you think, like what comes to mind when you think of Dundalk? <laughs> Nothing else needs to be said. <laughs> so in, in, in biblical poetry and imagery, <laughs> hey look, if you're from Dundalk, I love you. Love Dundalk, it's a very unique place. Um, uh, yeah, of course, of course I do. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. Um, but but listen, we, even today, right, we just saw it, we attach ideas and things to place names, we do. And in the biblical period that this was written in, this is, this is no, ex- no exception. And so the two place names that he mentions that I thought were interesting, he mentions a place called Bashan, and he mentions a place called Carmel. Now, at face value, we see that, you know, if you if you do Googling or anything on these places at their time, And even today, perhaps, they were very, like, very lush, very fruitful, like they grew a lot, like it was not not at all would look to be a desert wasteland. It was some of the strongest, like most fertile places in that region. And what Nahum is saying is like, listen, when God throws down, it's all gonna be dried up and it's gonna be a desert. But there's there's more to the picture here that we need to see. Bashan and Carmel, so the Hebrew term Bashan comes from hang with me here this is a lot but i promise where i'm going is important uh, the hebrew term bashan comes from the ugaritic term that is the same that's Batan, and it, it's related to the that's where we get like leviathan right like that's the same part of that word is the same thing and basically what it means bashan means the place of the snake it's very interesting so where do we know a snake from the garden right the Garden of Eden narrative in Genesis chapter 3. And so this place, Bashan, if you look into it, the, 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 the context that it carried within the, the Israelites at the time, like Bashan was the gate to the underworld, basically. And all of the, like Ag of Bashan from the conquest, like he was a giant figure, he's tied to Bashan. And there's a, there's a ton of baggage there. That um, There's some more stuff in the program if you want to look at that. Um, but it, it's called the place of the snake, which is very, very interesting, that God wants to destroy the place of the snake. And then on the other side of that coin, we have Carmel. Not like, you know, on your ice cream, like <laughs> Carmel, Carmel the place. In Hebrew, that term just means like lush, basically. Um, but Mount Carmel, which is the, the place that it's talking about, was like the epicenter of Baal worship in Israel. And Baal was a, was a Canaanite deity that the Israelites, you know, at times went after and were apostate. And they were exiled out of their land for doing that. And Baal was known for child sacrifice, which is horrible. So if you ever wonder why God exiled his people and punished them, it's because they were sacrificing their children. It's, yeah, makes a lot more sense, right? And so, and even, even uh, I think archaeologically in Canaan, it was like there's inscriptions that just say, Baal, he took the children. Like that's, that's what he's known for. And so... When we look at this, like these, and Mount Carmel, right? This is where Elijah, he had like a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and he called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. Like, that's what happened there, because that was like a cult center for people who worshiped Baal. And so you have all of this stuff that is wrapped up in these two place names, and Nahum saying, Listen, God's going to wipe it out. Like, it is done, it's over. And then we can tie this into like eschatological day of the Lord stuff, what that means, but that's another time. Um, But my point is that there's a lot associated with these place names, and here's here's what it boils down to. Like, what, what this system is, Nahum leaves the first chapter pretty ambiguous. Nahum himself never actually mentions Assyria or Nineveh. It's like a heading that the passage has, but his vision never mentions it. And it's very ambiguous for a reason, and that's because this serves as a template of how God chooses to deal with evil. Like, this is how he deals with it. He throws down. And what this shows us is that throughout history, all of the rising and falling of empires is something that God has his hands very much so in. Like, this is not something that is outside of his control, and it's something that he's actually, like, all of the chaos that we see, all of the, you know, the nations crumbling and starting, like, this is not just mess. Like, this is something that God has his hand very much in. And as we look at, right as we take a step back and we look at our world and we want to see we want to see something good out of this mess we have to trust in the fact that what is happening like it's not just outside of god's control he's actually a very integral part of it like he is actually moving things toward a desired end and what is the desired end the return of christ right like he is working all of these things together he's setting up he's throwing down Whoops, sorry, my bad. Um, he's setting up, he's throwing down, he knows the heart of each of the seven and a half billion human beings on this planet and he is orchestrating things and moving them for the good of his plan and for the good of his people. And we have to see that. If you're looking at the world and you're like, I just, I, I just can't watch the news, which I don't, by the way. I think that's a super helpful thing. Um, but if you're just like, I just can't watch the news, things are just a mess. Yeah, they are. They are a mess. They are... Things that'll make you anxious if you spend too much time looking at it. But why is that? That's because all of these garbage news networks that we follow all have a twisted perspective and have a narrative they want to spin. And if we want to have a gospel-centered perspective of what the world is and what it's going to look like, we won't get it from Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or all the other no-name networks out there that I don't know because I don't watch. Um, but, But we won't get it there. But where we will get a good view from, where we will get a good worldview ver- wor- oh, world from, Jason, you got me tongue twisted. I'm just looking at you a little, bit, a little you know, all twisted up. Um, but where we will get a good worldview from is from scripture. And that's one of the reasons that I urge teenagers in the back, I don't know if y'all are paying attention or not, but one of the reasons that I urge them to engage with scripture is because it creates a worldview. It creates a worldview that gives space to see God work, and to see the best and the mess that we do have. That's, that's what it is. So here's, so place of the snake, circling back to Bashan. Look, we, whether we know it or not, when we attach ourselves to these evil systems and these evil things of the day, we do that by participating in things, right? What we watch, what we listen to, what we take part in. When we do that, we are literally attaching ourselves to something. And then when bad things happen, we're like, what did I do wrong? Well, you're attaching yourself to something that God wants to destroy, is what you're doing. And when he destroys it, if you attach yourself to it, guess what's gonna happen to you? Your collateral damage. Not because God wants to judge you, but because you're attaching yourself to things that you don't need to be attaching yourself to. And in our lives, I think a lot of times we, God wants to destroy the snake, right? The place of the snake, Bashan. He wants to destroy that and decimate it, but we, because we do what we want, we want to give place to the snake, right? We don't want to destroy it. We want to be a part of what it's got going on that's good for us. And in our sanctification process, in our, in our journey from moving to, to a worldview that makes us anxious to a worldview that makes us comforted, right, through the Holy Spirit, we have to understand that there are just certain things that we need to stay away from. And if you ask yourself, should I really be doing this? You, you probably shouldn't be doing it. You probably shouldn't be engaging in that. You probably shouldn't be with that person if you're, if you're experiencing thoughts in your mind that are saying like, is this really right? Is this really good for me? That's, that's the only question that needs to be asked. And if we're moving forward in the sanctification we need to stop and we need to say, Lord, I'm having a hard time with this. I'm having a hard time navigating this. I need, <laughs> I need your spirit to guide me and point me in the right direction. And that will allow you to not attach yourself to evil, but to get yourself away from it. That way you can be like Nahum when he's writing this and saying like, yeah, it's really good that they're being destroyed because they're evil and I'm not a part of it, right? Like he's able to be comforted because he's not a part of it. And some of us, that's just, it's just not the case. We are very much so a part of it. So are you giving the place, are you giving place to the snake to ruin or are you giving place to the spirit to work? You're, you're one or the other. There is no both and or, right? Like you can't, you can't have it both ways. I have heard it both ways, but you can't have it both ways. <laughs> That's a reference that none of you will get. Um, anyway, so look, it's hard. <laughs> it's very difficult to find comfort in how God chooses to handle the evil of the world if we're partakers in the very thing that he wants to destroy. And this is something that we all have to think like super hard about because there's probably, and, and you know, God's merciful, right? And there's probably things that we are wrapped up in that we're involved in that we don't need to be, and we don't even know it. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes into play again. Like, God, show me show me what I'm wrapped up in, show me what I'm involved in that I just don't need to be. Help me help me to help you give destruction to what needs to be destroyed in my life and, and give growth where I need to get it in my life. Because we're not growing if we're, it's, it's, he said it, I think you said it, it was either in worship to, uh, at the 11 or the 9, but... You know, the weed gets planted in the garden and it just, it takes everything. And if you're, you know, if you're planting weeds in your, weeds in your garden, it doesn't matter how nice the plants you buy, the weeds are going to kill them, right. plain and simple. You can't have both things coexisting at the same time. Moving on to uh, verse number nine, this is, uh, this is where it gets kind of morbid a little bit. Um, he says this, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. What does that mean? That means that they're going to be destroyed the first time, and there will be nobody to cry for help the second time. That's harsh. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed. as stubble completely withered from you, Assyria, has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, they're big, they're strong, their armies huge, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Israel, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar, bondage, from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated, Assyria, and I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods, and I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Holy cow. Like that's, once again, that's not a, that's not a very comforting thing to read. Now, James echoes this sentiment, because look at, look at what's happening here. Like, the evil, the very evil that this empire sought to produce and was producing and was using to build itself is the very evil that will be the downfall of that empire. We see it all the time. It's, it, you know, we use a metaphor for that, like, you shot yourself in the foot. You know, you did it to yourself. And that's, this is how, once again, blueprint. This is how God says, hey, listen, this is what happens. This is what happens with the rise and fall of nations. <laughs> And so James echoes this sentiment when he says, then, when lust, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is accomplished, it brings forth death. And this is a principle that is not just applicable to hostile, big, evil empires. This is, a, this is something that's very applicable to our own lives. If we are wrapped up in sin, if we are wrapped up in things that we are not supposed to be wrapped up in, guess what? The end result is our destruction, The end result is that your children will feel the pain of your decisions. Because that in Exodus 34, we all are kind of like, whew, what does God mean when he says that the ramifications of these actions will be felt for two, three, four generations? It's because your mistakes and what happens to you because of your mistakes will affect one, two, three, four generations. How many of you actually want that for your children? Nobody. All of us want the best for our children. But what we don't realize is what we don't realize. Right? What we don't know is what we don't know. And like I said, some of us are, we are engaged in things and behaviors that we we just shouldn't. And this is something that for me, I'm constantly trying to weed out and work through things that I don't, I didn't even know that I was doing. I didn't even know things that I was doing that hurt people, but I'm trying to work through them. Why? Because whether I know it or not, the consequences are still there. My daughter, the best of my attentions, rather, my daughter still could grow up and say, my dad didn't love me right? Doesn't matter how hard I think I tried, but it matters what actually happens. And so as we think about this, like, let's think about what our position is towards evil. Let's think about what our position is towards our own sin. And let's look at, let's look at what it looks like to be sanctified. Let's look at, you know, allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work in us, to separate us from what he needs to separate us from, and move us in the direction that is conforming to his son. The fall of the empire in view is not because of a desired regime regime change. God didn't say, I don't like the president there, so we're throwing down, right? It's because of unrepentant evil. And look, this is funny. Every time I'm up here to preach, I said it. I talk about Jonah for some reason. Uh, but Jonah is all about Nineveh, right? The, the capital of the, Syri- the Assyrian Empire, one of them. Uh, it's all about them getting a second chance and a chance to repent from their evil. And based on this, guess what they didn't do? They didn't repent from their evil. And so they're getting destroyed. When we willingly live a life of sin, we are attacking our, or we are attaching ourselves to a supernatural evil. An evil, <clears throat> I'm sorry, um, an evil that will ultimately be destroyed. And this is kind of this kind of revolves back around like why do good things or why do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes good people get wrapped up in the wrong stuff. That's just what it is. It's harsh. And it's not a nice, it's not a nice world that we live in, but we, we have to understand this principle of like we very much so what you do, what you say, and where you are, you're attaching yourself to things and people. And we have to understand as Christians that our influence that what we do is very, very important. It's very important. And if we're wrapped up in the wrong things or the wrong stuff and we're not moving forward and allowing the spirit to work in us, we are we are literally. Like you're building your own gallows where you will be hung. Like that, that's what we're doing and we don't even realize it. And I'm not talking to you all, like this is me. Like this is scary stuff. Like we all have to be constantly on alert of what we're doing and what we're wrapped up in. What time is it, Twelve All right, I'll be done in about a half hour. Hang in there. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> all right, so moving forward here, Nahum, in his oracle, he gives a template of how God topples empires over the ages, and evil, <clears throat> evil sows the seed of its own demise, and inevitably succumbs to it. Uh, this is interesting. So, verse 15, right? This was the icing on the cake for me. So, verse number 15, it's the closing verse of chapter 1. Nahum says this, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. This is a message of good news to the Israelites. He's, he's describing destruction. and He says, hey, Israelites, hey, God's people, this is good news for you. And what's interesting is when you read the Greek text, the same word for good news that is used for the gospel is used of this right here. The Greek word euangelion is where we get the word gospel. And it's the same right here. And so, what we need to understand based on this is that a key integral part of what the gospel is, is is God's defeat of evil. Like when we are a part of the gospel, when we are engaging in a gospel centered life, we are a part of destroying evil. When Jesus died, the Bible says that, or when Jesus died and was buried and rose again, the Bible says that he conquered the forces of evil. Like, that's, that's an integral part of what the gospel is, is Jesus conquered over the evil powers. That's what it is. And we, as believers, are part of that. And what's funny is that verse echoes this in Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. That's, like, that's Isaiah's message of the gospel. And that word... So we have the good news, and in the Hebrew text it says, who announces salvation? That word for salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. Who announces Yeshua? Does that ring a bell for anybody? What's Jesus' name in Hebrew? Yeshua. Yeshua, right? Who announces Jesus and says to Zion, your God reigns? Like this is all, it's all coming together, right? Like Jesus is there, very much so present in this story, and what Jesus is doing in us is an active part of what he is doing in the world. The church, I don't know if you know this or not, the church is God's agent of slowly but surely flipping the world over and it becoming Eden again. That's what we do. That's why our conduct matters. Right. If our church and our behavior does not mimic what God intended it to look like in Eden, we're not, we're not imaging God well. We're not doing that well. If, this doesn't, if our assembling and our relationships, if it's not looking wholesome, you know, and a lot of us, you know, a lot of people say, you know, they say, like, oh, I don't go to church, but I love Jesus. We've all heard that, right? Or we'll say, like, yeah, I go to church on Sunday, and that, that's pretty much it. I get my encouragement. But, like, what we're here to do is we're here to be the church. We're here to be God's hands and feet. His spirit is in the body. We are literally the body, the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what we are. Your conduct matters. Your growth as a Christian matters, and in our in our we have a very individualistic society but the facts are the bible was written in a very corporately minded society and if one of us in this body is is not like operating in the right way to where it affects the rest guess what that's not just your business you're affecting the whole body you are affecting the whole body of believers with your conduct and likewise the same like this is we all need to be in this together we are a community Right? If we see a brother who is falling, we need to help him. If we see a sister who is struggling, we need to help her. It's not like, well, I'll pray for you. No, what, what can you do for somebody to help them? Like beyond just. And we do need to pray for people. We have to, right? But what can we tangibly do to help and encourage one another? God is in a constant state of setting up and tearing down with nations. But he isn't just doing it with nations. He's doing it in us. Hebrews 13 says this, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, and this is key right here, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For, we, for, uh, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. All of us right here, we're, we're Americans. That's where we are, that's where we live but we do not, we serve a kingdom that is yet to come, that is here in this room, but has not fully come yet. That's what we're doing. And the Bible says very clearly in Hebrews 13, we follow Jesus outside of the gate and we bear reproach with him. We suffer with him, we are torn down with him. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. Let's think about the Tower of Babel. They said, let us make us a name. Let us build us a city. Let us make a reputation for ourselves. And guess what happens to, to, to Babel, Babylon, Assyria? They all get thrown down. In, in our life, and, and look, this is especially common with TikTok, Instagram, like people are, you can be famous by making like one funny video. Like you can, it's very easy to build yourself up and make money doing that. And so we have a culture of people who are constantly wanting to find ways to, to get their name out there and build themselves up only to be torn down listen if we if we are trying to build ourselves up, we will be torn down. but as believers, we are constantly called consistently called to tear ourselves down, so Christ can build us up. the bible's pretty clear that God resists the proud and he exalts the humble right if you 're all about you and, and getting I just want to save face and make sure everybody knows this X, Y, and Z about me, and I've got this going on, and I've got whatever amount of followers on Instagram is impressive, I'm not really sure, right? But if that's what you're about, if you're about kingdom building, if you're about, I don't know if it's your finances, if you just want to have, if your goal in life is to have a fat bank account, guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't. None of that stuff will bring you comfort, and none of that stuff will bring you joy. And if you hoard everything to yourself and it's all about you, guess whose kingdom you're not? spreading and helping along. We're not helping God's kingdom. Not that he needs our help, but that's what we are called to do. So I have three takeaways from this that I thought was, uh, thought was good. Now this whole, let's kinda of put a bow on this real quick. I'm running a little over, but we're doing good. Well, let's put a bow on this. We, <laughs> we wanna be comforted, right? We don't wanna have anxiety about the happenings of our world and what's happening. We have to understand that God's in control. We have to understand that we are not. We have to understand that by attaching ourselves to things that we shouldn't, and, and you know, it goes the same way. If you're attaching yourselves to something that you shouldn't and you know you shouldn't, and then you lie about it and you're living two different lives, that's a whole nother ball of wax. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, right? Like some of us, some of us are living two lives, and we need to get clean about it, and we need to get, get down to one. But if we want to be comforted, if we, want to live in a, if we want to live in a state of peace and not in a state of constant anxiety about the state of our world and about the state of ourselves, we gotta, we gotta follow through on this stuff. We have to allow the spirit to work. Don't give place to the snake. Don't, don't be a part of something that God actively is seeking to destroy. It's a very foolish thing to do, but we do it every day. Three practical takeaways. Number one, actively pursue a biblical worldview. Look, this is everything that we just talked about. This is something that the world outside of these walls doesn't have. Why do they not have it? Because it's, it's, it's biblical. If they're not pursuing God's word, they will not get a, an opinion or a view that is based on God's word. And his word, like he, Jesus is the prince of peace, right? Like if we want peace, if we don't want to live in a state of constant fear and anxiety and having to, to build ourselves up, we have to be wrapped up in that. But we can't do that if we don't have the proper biblical worldview. And we can't get a proper biblical worldview if your Bible collects dust on your shelf. That's just what it is. And for a lot of us, myself included, that's the case. But mine collects dust because I read on my computer. So I'm excused, right? (laughs) Can't get a paperback version of Logos, sorry. Um, Number two, partner with the Spirit if we're sitting here this morning and we're not actively engaged in our spiritual lives, if you're not waging this war on a spiritual front, you're losing. If you're not pursuing sanctification from the the perspective of, of allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide you, and you're just going off of a checklist of things that you feel like are good for you to do, you're losing. You're not getting it. And here's the thing, the Holy Spirit is in the room. He's right here. He's closer to you than the person who's sitting next to you. But yet, he is the most neglected person in our home. Is he not? Partner with the Spirit. And finally, and I'll I'll, I'll end with this listen, take a sip of water here for the finale. (sighs) Do not stop with justification. Justification is great. Being saved by grace through faith is amazing. What Jesus did for us is amazing, but he doesn't want it to stop there. He doesn't want it to stop there. And as we go about our lives, we have to be actively engaged. Lord, what am I doing? Lord, what should I be doing? How, How can I be more conformed to the image of your son today? And if we're not doing that, guess what? The new car smell is going to be gone. The good thing is with your faith the new the, the new car smell can come back, right? Can't do that with a car, but your faith can be fresh again, but the ingredient for that is sanctification. If you're not growing, if you're not if you're not pursuing the Lord, that fire is going to fizzle out and eventually it's going to die. And we don't need that. We don't want that. I don't think anybody in this room wants that. So what are we doing <laughs> what are we doing to keep the fire alive? because fires just don't burn on their own. They need fuel, and if you're not fueling up, you're losing. When was the last time you were at a small group on a Wednesday, right? We don't, You know, the church is, is here for us to develop and to grow and to be with each other, but if we're not doing that, we're missing the boat. If we're not engaging with each other, we, look, listen, we, the person sitting next to you, unless you're sitting by yourself, Steve, that's okay, You're plenty for yourself. You're good. I got you. You and me right here. Look, the person sitting next to you is the most important resource in your spiritual growth. Bible study is great, but if that's all you have and everybody else around you thinks you're annoying, that's a miss. And I fall into that category sometimes, for sure. Listen, let's have community with each other. Your sanctification stops when you stop fellowshipping with each other. Thanks for tuning in for this message on the Bethlehem Church Podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. If you want to know more about us, feel free to check out our website at BethlehemChurch.cc and also in every message that we publish, you'll find our sermon notes in the description and we hope that you'll study these topics further. We'll see you next time.